HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. Made with a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. For more information, visit www.rt11.com. Today's program is brought to you by Tabard Inn, new American cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardinn.com. My name is Hannah Forden. I'm the membership coordinator at Heritage Radio Network, but even before I joined the team, I loved listening to HRN during my subway commute. It made the time go quickly and left me feeling inspired for the day ahead. HRN listeners tune in from all over the world, but there are a few traits that we all have in common, no matter where we listen from. A curious palate, the fierceness to make a difference, and a hunger for lifelong learning about the culinary world. As you know, Heritage Radio Network is a listener-supported nonprofit. To deliver the most ambitious, entertaining, and of-the-moment stories in 2018, we need your help. We need to raise $150,000 by December 31st to accomplish these goals and to keep your favorite shows on the air. Together, we can make this HRN's most exciting, impactful, and delicious year yet. Become a member by donating today. Join us at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate, and you'll immediately start enjoying benefits such as VIP invitations to HRN events, where you will mix and mingle with your favorite hosts. Memberships also make a perfect holiday gift for all the foodies in your life. This year, why not give the gift of food radio? You'll hear your generosity in action for the year to come. Help keep our lights on and our mics hot by pledging your support today at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for listening. afternoon and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting live from Roberta's on Heritage Radio Network. Building and sustaining regional food systems has been a theme we've been exploring this season on Eating Matters, and today I'm going to be speaking with a company who is supporting the next generation of growers in doing just that. 
Joining me in the studio now is Tobias Peggs, co-founder and CEO of Square Roots, an urban farming and entrepreneurship platform that strengthens communities through real food. Tobias, welcome to the show. Hello, thank you for having me. Um, so excited to have you in person, by the way. Thank you for making the trip to Roberta's. No, it's really cool to be here. Um, our farm, actually, is less than a mile from Roberta's, right? We talk oh, about God. urban farming. We yeah. describe Square Roots as extreme urban farming, right? We are right in the middle of bed Yeah. And, uh, yeah, we often actually come to Roberta's uh, with our team for a little bit of pizza on a Friday night. It's a beautiful uh, place to to come and, uh, and eat some really delicious food what they need to do is have our basil on their yes pizza, right? they enjoy <laughs> <laughs> little plug there i of might figure that one do. out on the way out of the restaurant yeah, yeah yes what a great team outing my god um okay so i you know mentioned sort of the two kind of pillars of the of the yeah. business but can you tell me a little bit about you know what like the like you know basically what do you, what you do what do we do what do you do yeah, exactly. yeah. what the hell do you do <laughs> yeah so i mean you described it well right it's a, a you know urban farming and entrepreneurship platform really though we you know what we're trying to do is strengthen communities by bringing real food to everyone right real food is food that you can trust uh, what we believe is that if you know your farmer you trust the food mm-hmm. right uh, so what we have is an indoor farm. Uh, we've actually built a farm inside of refurbished shipping containers. We have about 10 of them sitting side by side in a parking lot outside the old Pfizer uh, building in uh, here in Brooklyn. And then inside each of those containers, inside each of those farms, um, it's a controlled climate hydroponic system that each one is capable of growing about 50 or 60 pounds a week of uh, leafy greens and herbs. So there's like a ton of food growing on mm-hmm. on this farm. But the magic in the system is really the farmers, right? So we have 10 farmers there. They're growing food. They're selling food. Uh, they do that mostly direct to the consumer. We can talk about those models later. But the, the kind of real magic is in the background. They're also being coached on how to become real food entrepreneurs in their own right. Okay. So so how does this, who, who are the growers? And yeah. how does that relate to the resident program? Yeah, that, that, they're kind of one and the same, right? So um, what we do is we have a call for applications once a year. Um, we, you know, for the first program that we had, which was um, um, a year ago, right? So we, we opened the farm a year ago. So we've just gone through one 12-month program. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we made that initial call for applications, you know, we didn't even have a farm to show people. I don't even think we had a website at that point in time, actually. We just had like a blog post and an idea that we were going to run this program. Yeah. And we had 500 people apply to spend 12 months at, uh, wow. as being a Square Roots resident entrepreneur, right? And, you know, so being a Square Roots resident entrepreneur, being a farmer, is a 12-month commitment. And as I said, you grow food, you sell food, right? You run a business, you learn how to run a small business. Mm-hmm. And then in the background, you're being coached through, uh, you know, a series of programming events around four main pillars, uh, farming, business, community, leadership, right? Either people on our team are coaching you in that regard, or we have about 120 mentors that are associated with the program that come into the farm and coach modules on that uh, you know, uh, on those areas. And the idea is that at the end of the 12 months, having got the experience of running a small business and having learned a lot in those four pillars, uh, you've then got the tools to go out there on your own two feet and set up your own business 
mm-hmm. in the real food world, right? And start contributing as a, you know, as your own founder, building a business and kind of being part of that real food revolution. So is the goal for everyone to, for these um, residents to go on and become farmers in and of themselves? Or? Yeah, not, not necessarily, right? I think that, you know, the skills that we're sort of coaching here, um, you know, obviously far, farming is kind, kind of core, right? But, but business, leadership, community, these are very sort of transferable skills to other areas, right? So we've, as I said, we've just had the first uh, cohort, the first season, as we refer to it, uh, uh, graduate, 10 people. Uh, two of them have gone on to set up their own urban farm in New York City immediately, right? So that's fantastic. That's exactly what we hope would happen with the system, right? There are now more urban farms in New York than there were 12 months ago. Awesome. Right. We're happy about that. However, you know, a couple of them are going off to set up a hardware company, right? They've been working inside these uh, indoor controlled climate farms for a year with these like crazy lighting systems. And they're looking at these lighting systems thinking, you know, i got a better design. I have a more efficient design. Mm-hmm. Now I know how to run a business. I'm going to go build a hardware company that actually builds a better lighting system to sell to urban farmers because I too want more real food in the world. I want more food grown in local urban farms. Uh, I don't necessarily want to grow the food, right? I'm going to go build hardware or go build software or whatever it is that supports and enables um, that, that whole movement to happen. So what is the average age? What are these what do these residents look like? Or is it geared mostly towards younger people? Yeah, they're kind of early twenties, I would say. Um, and uh, the 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 range of backgrounds though is pretty remarkable, right? I mean, you know, if I think about the first program, you know, we had Lou who grew up in um, Hunts Point in the Bronx. You know, anyone listening to this podcast is gonna know that that is the epicenter for uh, you know, distribution and logistics yep. for the industrial food system in the tri-state area. You know, he grew up in a neighborhood where every single day 30,000 trucks arrived full of food to be dropped into warehouses, and yet he couldn't buy a single fresh lettuce in that neighborhood because there's literally nowhere to buy it. It's a food yeah. desert. Again, we, we all know this. So you have folks like him coming in who's like super passionate about access and justice and bringing freshly grown uh, or fresh locally grown food, you know, to the neighborhood, right? We also had folks like, um, you know, Eric, who was a former investment banker, right? And he one day just decided that he didn't want to spend the rest of his life in front of a spreadsheet. He actually wanted to make an impact on the world and got curious about the best way to do that, right? And then joined Square Roots to learn how to, you know, bring real locally grown food to his community. What's amazing about this is, you know, you have Eric and you have Lou and you have, you know, the other eight people and they all come from very different backgrounds and they're all then understanding the issue from very different angles right and so when we have you know our weekly kind of farmers round table and they're all there trying to help each other and solve these problems the different backgrounds that they come at it from um you know different solutions that they can bring to bear the different contexts right that they've all yeah, had it's like kind cross of grown pollination up. Of it's amazing and, yeah. then to see the solutions that they come up with right that are now being stimulated by you know signals that you know typically they would not have seen in, in their life you know it's a remarkable thing to watch actually how can people afford to do this? Do, you, do the farmers get paid or is this, you know, is there a grant to subsidize them? I mean, what does this look like? Yeah, so um, it's hard work, mm-hmm. um, you know, for sure. Like we, we definitely position Square Roots as an entrepreneur program, right? And, uh, you know, you know, I know, right? Entrepreneurship is, is full of ups and downs and, mm-hmm. and, you know, part of the, you know, if you're wired in a certain way, right? You know, part of the joy is the, is, is the struggle in a kind of like weird mm-hmm. kind of masochistic entrepreneurship way. <laughs> the way the you know <laughs> yeah true I, like, i've never <laughs> even though i know that i've still been doing it for like 25 years yeah you're addicted exactly right anyway 
the, the way that square roots work is the, the, the farmers and the entrepreneurs, they make money by growing and selling food, mm-hmm. right? We do a revenue share with the farmers on the food that they have grown and sold. So we are not successful unless they are not successful, right? Or sorry, we're successful if they're successful. And what I love about that model then is that our incentives are completely aligned, right? What it means is that our team can wake up every day thinking, how can we help these people become more successful entrepreneurs, right? Your, Get- your team meaning like, quote unquote, corporate? Yeah, that, that's exactly. We, okay. we have a home team, right, where mm-hmm. there's a head farmer who's helping everyone sort of grow delicious food, right, where we have a branding expert who's helping these people get out to market and tell their story, mm-hmm. acquire customers, retain customers. We have a business development person who's then working one-on-one with a farmer, you know, knocking on restaurant doors, getting in, right, figuring okay. out how to get. Yeah. So we have like a whole team, you know, as you said, quote, unquote, corporate, what we call the core team. And they're there pretty much as a service to the resident entrepreneurs, right? Whatever those people, whatever the young farmers want, mm-hmm. help with branding, help with finance, help with, you know, just ideation, you know, sometimes just a shoulder to cry on, right? Because mm-hmm. whatever, they accidentally left a pump off on the farm and went away for the weekend and come back and the plants are wilted and like, hey, the hell do you deal with that? Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. these things happen. And so our team is kind of there to support them every step of the way, needing to, by virtue of the fact that the way this whole thing is structured, needed needing to you know help them every step of the way to become a successful entrepreneur and generate revenue that year how so is it just greens right now that you guys are growing yeah i mean yes um and there are so many interesting ways to answer that right so i would say across the 10 farms that we have right now on any one week we're probably growing 40 different varieties of greens and herbs and so i I just want to interrupt you because i want to just further paint the picture of mm-hmm. what the farm, what, what we're talking about with sure. the farms. So, and you mentioned the Pfizer building. So the Pfizer building is a, literally it's an old Pfizer plant and it's in the middle of, what is the neighbor, like bed Bushwick. I feel like all of these neighborhoods kind of Yeah, all, it depends what uh, realtor you're talking yeah. to on any one day. <laughs> and what, what I would say with that Pfizer building yeah. is very interesting is that in the lead up to the, so that buildings are over a hundred years old, right? In mm-hmm. the lead up to the first world war, that building was the U.S.'s largest producer of ammonia. Now, at the time, ammonia was used for explosives, right? Very helpful in the First World War, right? And through the Second World War. Post the Second World War, if you'd look at agriculture history, it was that excess capacity of ammonia that we had that actually gave birth to the industrial food system, right? Someone figured out you can dump it on a field and, hey, there's chemical fertilizer, right? So that building is essentially the birthplace of industrial food in America, right? And so when we were looking at uh, sort of real estate options 18 months ago now to build that first farm, the opportunity came up to put a farm that grew local food for the community on the parking lot of the birthplace of the industrial food system. That was kind of too delicious to turn down, you know? Yeah, That's amazing. And it's a huge parking spot. It's a a big space. Oh, Um, my God, yeah. yeah. I can't even think in square feet, right? But I I think about um, our farms that are in shipping containers, and each one is 320 square feet. Yeah. Um, It's just a standard 40-foot shipping container. We have 10 of them right now, and we're just like in a tiny, tiny corner of that parking lot. Just a cluster. Yeah, we could put like 250 of those things in there over time. And the um, the amazing thing is that that Pfizer building now is home to a lot of smaller independent mm-hmm. food producers. 
Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, Roberta's actually um, have Their got pizza. a kitchen. Yeah. That's exactly right. So, like, I'll often, you know, the, the one-on-one meetings Fro- the that I might have pizza. with a farmer. Frozen. I think that's right. But you still kind of smell it being yeah. cooked, you know. Oh, so, yeah, I'll, I'll, you know, I do, like, weekly one-on-one uh, meetings with the farmers, but I always do a walk and talk, right? Let's just kind of walk stroll around. around the building and then you're, like, smelling all, like, yeah, the pizza really and the good. cupcake. And, like, that, oh, yeah. Oh, my God, that building's amazing. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, it's, it's a very unique, special place. And yeah. I did not know that about the history so yeah it's um, an incredible story it's perfect okay so right now you're doing we we're talking about le- your leafy oh, greens oh yeah sorry that's so, right yeah, yeah so we're going so across the 10 uh, containers the 10 farms that we have anyone we will might be doing like 40 different varieties of leafy greens right anything from you know kale arugula chard um spinach um you know one of the farmers last year um, got a deal with a Japanese restaurant and started growing shiso leaves. Um, you know, there, there's kind of mint, basil, right? Other herbs that are going on there. It's pretty, pretty incredible. So the beautiful thing, you know, with these indoor controlled climate farms is exactly that you control the climate, right? So you can optimize the light, the temperature, the humidity, the CO2 level, you know, all of these things and make that the optimum climate for the crop that you are growing, right? So you walk into you know, the Shiso farmer's farm, and it feels like you're in Hokkaido in northern Japan, right? Because that's the right kind of climate for growing that that crop. Um, and um, so, yeah, across, like I say, probably, prob- probably 40 varieties at any one time. But could you expand that to, say, tomatoes or cucumbers? I mm-hmm. feel like those are in hot demand. Oh, yes, they are. 365 tasty. Yeah, and then, you know, this kind of gets down to the economics, right, of indoor farming, really, because, you know, so we want to um, grow this food all year round, so we don't really want to be at the mercy of the sun, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, today, you know, in Brooklyn, it's kind of gray and overcast, and, you know, it's kind of, like, kind of a miserable day. Yeah. Um, And it's bloody freezing, right? You're not kind of going to grow a lot of food outdoors today. Um, you can indoors, right? And so as a, as a consequence of that, you know, to, to take that all away, like we have indoor lighting, right? So, um, which costs money, right? You plug the lights into electricity and you have an electricity bill at the end of the day. Now, when you're growing plants, right, what's happening is basic photosynthesis, right? The, the plant is kind of taking energy from that light and then converting that energy into biomass. Mm-hmm. So the more biomass you're trying to create, in essence, the, the, the heavier the vegetable, right? The more energy it takes and so the more costly that is. So if you're growing um, leafy greens and herbs, you know, not too much biomass, it mm-hmm. doesn't require that much energy and it means you can get a product to market today at a very kind of competitive price, right? The kind of denser you go, uh, the more energy you need and at that, uh, you know, today that might be a little expensive, right? So this is kind of one of the benefits of having a, a super high-tech solution here is that you've got the technology uh, curve right, going, which is then changing the economics and the cost, you know, almost at this point on a weekly basis, right? So to put that in plain English, given <laughs> where we think the lighting systems are heading, yep. you know, we see no reason why we wouldn't be doing fruiting crops, you know, blueberries, strawberries, tomatoes, and getting them to market at a really competitive cost, maybe not this winter, but certainly next winter. Mm-hmm. And what that means then is that, you know, February 2019, there could be two foot of snow in New York, and you could open your app and just, you know, get to 
get open the Square Roots app and hit, you know, give me some strawberries. And a farmer would just like harvest strawberries that are growing, you know, right there in the middle of February, you know, in New York and wade through this, you know, kind of two foot of snow to, you know, knock on your door and give you this like freshly harvested, locally grown punnet of strawberries, right? It's amazing. Yeah. Right? That's coming. That is like right around the corner. It's very interesting. Um, so I want to talk about like the kind of the model, how you, the di- distribution of your product sure. in a minute. But like first, how, how much energy would that, t- I mean, how do you kind of reconcile like the environmental footprint with growing maybe some of these more resource intense vegetables and fruits that mm-hmm. you, you know you want to in the future with yeah. um, you know what that that footprint footprint would be? Yeah, I mean it's a it's a fascinating question with multi dimensional complex answers, right? I think you know when you're growing food right in the middle of the neighborhood next to the people that are going to eat the food. One of the major advantages there is that you have, you know, essentially zero impact on the planet in terms of transport, right? So our farmers will, you know, literally harvest and jump on a, you know, city bike or subway, um, you know, or even walk, right, to the end consumer, right? So when you think about sort of the impact on the planet of food, you know, the industrial food system that's shipping in food from thousands of miles away, um, you know, from different continents. I mean, that's just like an insane amount of transport, right? That's contributing to pollution and you know all, all these things. It's horrific. So if you can take take that out, um, you're you're onto something, right? Yeah. Today, then, um, with indoor farming, I think you know you've got the 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 you know cu- couple of advantages, right? So one one is in these indoor farms, we're growing vertically, right? Or actually we're growing in three dimensions, right? So, um, you know, the way I sort of describe it is imagine kind of a two-dimensional field like you have on a farm mm-hmm. and then turn that field on its end and rack that field back to back and squeeze it inside a shipping container. Mm-hmm. And that's what we've got going on in Brooklyn, right? So now you're growing food in three dimensions instead of two dimensions, which means you get a lot more food out of the same size footprint right Right. so that that's advantage number one you don't need as much space doing it this way Mm -hmm. advantage number two is water right these systems are ridiculously water efficient um so so? well so one of our um, shipping container farms you know on an annual basis you might you know let's say you're growing lettuce heads right you might get 50 or 60 thousand head of lettuce out of that you know box on an annual basis there might be like an acre of outdoor land right yeah so you know let's let's say it's the equivalent of an acre of land right and you're using eight gallons of water a day on these indoor farms which is like less than your shower very small wow is it really yeah Yeah. that's probably like 90 95 percent less water than you would use in in an outdoor farm right it's kind of crazy efficient um, and then the, the flip side of that is we're obviously chewing through electricity, right, to power the lights. Right. Um, and, you know, again, right, what you have to sort of believe in there is that you can move that technology curve and get those lights more and more efficient. Mm-hmm. Our pathway is to get them so efficient that they can actually be powered all by solar and batteries. And then you can just take these farms right off the grid, right? Wow. You, you couldn't do that today. Right. The efficiency of solar and the efficiency of lighting is just not there. But if you sit in a room with a bunch of scientists and kind of plot those efficient efficient curves and see where that's going, mm-hmm. like that's on the horizon. Like I don't know if it's you know seven or ten years away, but like it's there, and that's definitely a, a sort of you know near term vision that we're planning for. So you mentioned in terms of getting these products to market that you have um, you know the growers can just like jump on their bike and deliver, you know, deliver the food mm-hmm. kind of immediately, and they have to go a very short distance to do so. But my question is. 
is that scalable? Well, you know, like, and how do you how do you scale that, right? Yeah, I mean, this is kind of the, one of the beauties of the system, right? Because if you think about us as a you know as a platform, right? We talked about this this team that we have, right? The core team, the business development, the marketing, the branding, the finance. Like, we're all there to support ultimately thousands of small business farmers, right? So individually, they don't have to achieve massive scale, right? In aggregate, they can achieve massive scale and that helps both them because you know they're there for a year to learn how to become an entrepreneur to graduate from the program go off and set up their own business make a bit of money while they're doing it you know for us if we're empowering not just 10 of those at a time like we are in brooklyn today but thousands of those people at a time because now we've got campuses all over the country right which Mm -hmm. is kind of our roadmap then it becomes a very 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 interesting business Mm-hmm. And in terms of like long-term kind of growth and from like a funding perspective mm-hmm. and how you as an organization make money mm-hmm. is the idea, I mean, I'm, are you a 501c3? Are you a B Corp? Like, are you, I mean, I'm assuming you have raised rounds of funding. What is the... Yeah, like- we're, 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 a, we're a C Corp. Uh, we did think hard about B Corp certification. So we have a very explicit social mission, right? And in fact, we run the company as a double bottom line company where we care as much about the social returns as we do the financial returns. Um, You know, for us, we want to bring real food to everyone. We want to strengthen communities through food. We want to empower the next generation of leaders in the food industry, right? These are the things that we wake up thinking about creating that impact. If we do that at scale, we will make money and the financial returns will come as well, right? So we sort of take this impact first approach every single day. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as I said, when we set the company up, the discussion was, okay, should we jump straight to B Corp? You know, when you are a B Corp, you you, you kind of got to codify that impact on day one. And, and in many ways, that kind of puts you in a straight jacket, right? And right. I think it's kind of wise, honestly, for super early stage startups like we are right now to take that impact first approach and you know wake up every day really making sure that you are what i call valuing your values right living and breathing those values and making that happen if subsequent to that it kind of makes sense to certify as a b corp then i think that's a kind of fine option Mm -hmm. um and uh, that's kind of the approach that we've taken anyway so yeah from a funding perspective um we're actually funded more like a tech company would be actually and that may well be you know to do with kind of my background right i've had 20 years in silicon valley at that point so kind of my brain's wired that way but yeah we've taken um what's called a seed round of funding no pun intended Mm. uh five million dollars and that's enabled us then to build the first farm and then run um the first two 12-month programs Mm uh we're just like a month into the second program now which is really awesome yeah and um and then also to start start scouting out uh new locations right so part of the work that kimball my co-founder and i are doing right now is flying around the country sort of talking with um you know officials and investors and and trying to figure out where it makes sense to build the next kind of five or six square roots campuses um, can urban agriculture really feed cities, right? What is, what is the expectation realistically for, um, yes. you know, urban yes, growing yes, to do yes, this? Yes, yes, and, yes. I mean, the other yeah. thing is it has to. Or, or, is it, or is it meant to be sort of just a supplement? Well, I hear we go. And sorry, I've had way too much coffee this morning. Yeah, so I, me I too, by myself, the way. I'm super you, yeah. <laughs> um, Okay, so number one, it has to. 
or it certainly has to contribute a lot, right? So I think about my home country, the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, again, people listening to this podcast might be more familiar with this kind of story, right? But when I tell this people to, you know, people beginning to wrap their head around urban agriculture and why we need it, people are shocked, right? So in my home country, the UK, because of the intensive farming techniques that have, you know, been there for the last 50 years or whatever, and, and you know, multiplied by the effects of uh, climate change, it's estimated right now that there are about 100 harvests left in farmland, right, outdoors. So probably within our lifetime, you will not be able to farm outdoors in the UK. What? Right? Why? Because all of the topsoil where those yeah. plants are growing is yeah. just getting eroded at yeah. a kind of incredible rate, right? And so you've got to, you've got to figure out additional solutions, right? Mm-hmm. And so... You know, then if you just, you know look at this country, right, around, you know, climate change, what that's doing to droughts in California, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The, the other thing as well is, you know, a lot of a lot of the innovation and investment in urban agriculture is really being driven, as it should be, by consumer demand, right? Mm-hmm. The consumer is saying, we have lost trust in the industrial food system. This food is being shipped in from thousands of miles away. We've got no idea where it comes from. We don't want it. We want locally grown food. If you live in the city and you want locally grown food, then urban agriculture is kind of inevitable, right? And it's hyper-local. Yeah, yeah, again, and, you know, we all know the, the famous UN stat, right, that by 2050 there'll be 9.6 billion people on the planet and 70% will live in a- urban areas, right? That mm-hmm. trips off the tongue of everyone. But stop and think about what that, that means, right? Yeah. Exactly. You've now got, you know, whatever, six, bill- six plus billion people living in a city who want local food by 2050. Mm-hmm. That is not you know, thousands of years where right? it's literally around the corner, right? So we got to go figure out urban farming. And if you want to go do, you know, make sure that that is then, you know, providing access to locally grown food all year round, you've got to go that further step and make that indoor control climate urban farming, right? So you can do that 12 months a year. So at this point, I think it is inevitable. Is it going to, you know, feed the world, right? Give us everything that we need. You know, does it make sense to grow corn in a, you know, shipping container in Brooklyn, right? Mm-hmm. Today, probably not, actually, right? Um, yeah, like definitely not. Yeah, I mean, just like the economics <laughs> don't make sense, right? And when, you know, For when sure is that going to... So, like, I do, so I don't think it's, you know, it isn't... Um, it, it isn't a, a solution bullet. that... You're right, it isn't a silver bullet that is, you know, going to feed the world in the next 10 years. Um, you know, and give them everything, but boy, oh boy, do we need this solution, right? And also the consumer is kind of demanding this solution. And if we start today with leafy greens Mm -hmm. and two years from now, we're doing blueberries, strawberries, and tomatoes. And, you know, by the way, some of our farmers are beginning to experiment with things like turnips and carrots and, you know, yada, 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 like, you know, 10 years from now, who knows, right? What is viable, um, through these systems, but unless you start, right, you're never going to know. Okay, so with that, I want to take a super quick commercial break and hear a word from our sponsors. But when we get back, um, we'll talk a little bit more about some of the public policy aspects uh, around urban agriculture and what the future plans for Square Roots are. Stay tuned. The following program has been brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. From the moment Root 11 Potato Chips dropped their first batch of chips back in the early days of 1992, they understood their destiny as a high-quality producer. Instead of succumbing to the frenzy of mass production, they took advantage of their small size and made chipping a personal art form. The payoff was immediate. Incredible potato chip. With a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. 
In this world of uncertainty that we live in, Route 11 Potato Chips believes comfort food should be just that. Know where your food comes from. For more information, visit rt11.com. The following program has been brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential small hotel, is located on a quiet, tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 40 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant, or enjoy a cocktail and listen to live jazz in one of their cozy Victorian seating areas. Mingle with travelers from around the world who find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com. And we're back on Eating Matters, where today I am speaking with Tobias Pegg, CEO and co-founder of Square Roots. Okay, so before we went to commercial break, we started talking about kind of the need, the, the need for urban farming and for hydroponics because of the degradation of our topsoil right now, which is happening, mm-hmm. you know, all over the world. Mm-hmm. Um, there has been, as I'm sure you know, a kind of a recent divide in the, in the quote, specialty crop farming community um, between kind of traditional organic farmers and hydroponics, whereby hydroponic growers, you know, w- wanted organic designation and um, traditional organic farmers like outdoors <laughs> were, you know, pushed back to this. And, you know, I think a lot of this is a result of the fact that you see a lot of hydroponic products come to market and really compete um, in a in a big way in terms of like supermarket shelf space with, mm-hmm. with organics. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I, I guess I'm wondering, like, what was your reaction to um, this whole debate between like between these two kind of, you know, community communities? Yeah, it's, you know, and the, the vote was what, eight to seven, mm-hmm. I think, like it was mm-hmm. a very tight very vote, quick. right? Which yeah, kind of very tight, very yeah. tight, right? Which kind of illustrates how hot. Uh, this debate is I mean it's, it's a very complex discussion it gets at the um, essence of what is organic supposed to mean right well but or, or does it get at the essence of who's making money out of food right and and, and again I think there are so many kind of so many areas that, that this go right so I think you know come up a level the the you know I think I sort of come at it from the perspective of the consumer right mm-hmm. and the consumer has lost trust in the industrial food system and they want food that they can trust and labeling can help, you know, designate food that you can trust, right? If I walk in a supermarket and I see a clamshell, you know, that doesn't have organic and a clamshell that does have organic, then at this point, I'm kind of trained to think, okay, well, organic. someone somewhere has said this is food that I can trust, right? And so, you know, that that has, you know, been a big driving force in organic food in America, you know, going from you know, literally zero a decade ago to become a $50 billion industry today it's a huge business right and so whilst we don't want in any way like to dilute you know that labeling and confuse the 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 customer unfortunately to me some of the arguments here that i that i hear about you know keeping hydroponic growers out of that market are driven by the fact that if i'm an organic farmer and now i'm in a 50 billion dollar industry do i want to open the door to additional competition competition, right Mm -hmm. no i don't right and so you hear you know naysayers talk about you know hydroponic or indoor growing as like science fiction or you know silicon valley disrupting agriculture and you we, we don't need this and like nothing could be further from the truth right you have you know companies out there that are trying to strengthen communities by bringing 
real locally grown food, right, to as many people as possible in the neighborhood, right? That that's kind of at, at the essence of a lot of the the the, the indoor growers, right? Mm-hmm. Plus the fact that because we're using you know controlled climate, and you know I talked about this kind of earlier, right? We're able to grow GMO free. Uh, the the amount of water that we use is kind of you know crazy efficient. Um, it's spray free, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's probably the cleanest food that you're ever going to eat. Right. Um, but it doesn't it doesn't contribute to you know improving the health of the soil. That's exactly right. Ar- yeah. Arguably, right? And right. so you know there are there are hydroponic uh, growers that you know have gone full cycle. Right? So what are they doing with their compost and how does that kind of contribute contribute back? Um, yeah, very, very complex conversation, right? So what, what is happening here in our industry, let's just talk about that for a minute. So you've got some of the you know big growers like Plenty in San Francisco who got very, very kind of, um, uh, you know, they activated their community very well in this debate, um, you know, and lobbied for being able to, um, you know, sell their food as certified organic. Um, and I totally understand. And we actually got behind that and worked with Plenty um, on that. You know, on the other hand, you've got companies like Bowery Farming, um, who are local um, here to New York. And, you know, they're like, well, we don't really want to get involved in that. They sort of have more of a technology kind of mindset, right, of, okay, well, let's just disrupt this whole thing. We'll come up with our new designation. And so they talk a lot about being post-organic. I've got to admit, to me, I find the whole conversation very frustrating. Mm -hmm. To me, you know, I think... You know, whether you're, you know, growing food in a shipping container on a parking lot in Brooklyn or whether you're growing food in a, you know, no-till organic farm upstate somewhere, what you are trying to do is bring real food, tasty, nutritious, locally grown food, and bring that to market in a way that strengthens the community, right, where people get to know their farmer. And we are all on the same side. The common enemy here is the industrial food right. system. And so to me, we shouldn't be squabbling on whether we can, you know, use an organic label, you know, on the thing. But what we should be doing is figuring out how to work with each other and learn from each other and bring more locally grown food to more people. That yeah. is where we should be putting our energy. This whole kind of conversation, I must admit, just like leaves me very frustrated. Yeah. No, I mean, I... I agree. Had to ask. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but, just, that, that's, that's me getting off my no, high horse. No, <laughs> I mean, I think it's really important, right? I think you see a lot of infighting, especially oh, within... Oh, it drives me nuts. But in that, this is like, especially within vegetable growers. And, I, and you know, you see, I think that manifests itself as, like, an inability to, uh, to coordinate and to really kind of lobby in a efficient way for things that we need at the federal level, like, say, more funding for, mm-hmm. um, you know these these vegetable growers or organic growers or whatever you know and I, so I think it is really important to talk about like the need to kind of band together versus infighting right. within mm-hmm. this particular mm-hmm. um, industry so I mean, here, here's the thing right you know we talk about the 50 billion dollar organic food industry yeah. food in general is like a four trillion dollar industry you know I yeah. come from tech yeah and it's 10 times bigger than tech you know there are plenty yeah, yeah. of room for us all to you know be very very successful if we decide to work together here and that's what we should do so let's talk about that you have a phd in artificial intelligence correct so obviously you run a food business <laughs> that's right isn't very natural <laughs> well, it's totally natural <laughs> what uh you know i mean and, and you were you mm-hmm. ran a few companies you said you you know you come from the t- tech world but like you know how did you get into food and and why 
Yeah, so I think, well, there's my story and then there's the story of um, my co-founder, Kimball Musk, right? So so I met Kimball probably 15 years ago at this point in the tech world, right? We had a technology company together, a very early social media analytics company together. At that time, he was already on this mission to get, you know, Americans off the industrial food system and onto a real food system, right? Healthy, local, sustainable food system. He does that and has been doing that for over a decade at this point through a vehicle called The Kitchen, Right, which is uh, manifests itself in a number of different ways. Um, he has a family of farm-to-table restaurants right across the heartland of America that are not the sort of fancy farm-to-table that we would think of in New York. You know, it's kind of like a competitor to a TGI Fridays or an Applebee's. Right, it's mm-hmm. kind of like very, very kind of accessible market. It's all salad, soups, burgers. It's you know six, seven bucks a plate, um, but it's all sourced from local farmers. Um, and he does an incredible job through that and a nonprofit and, you know, all these other things to to bring real food, uh, you know, to the heartlands and educate and inspire people and get communities kind of, you know, connected to the people that, that, that grow their food. It's pretty incredible. Um, you know, my my sort of, you know, entree into that world, you know, obviously when I started working with Kimberlin Tech, um, I was kind of aware of what he was doing. But one of the companies that we had together, I ended up selling to Walmart. Mm-hmm. And while I was inside Walmart, um, which is kind of what happens with these tech acquisitions, right? You then have to go work for the acquirer for a couple of years. So while I was inside Walmart, I ended up running mobile commerce for international markets, which sounds very fancy. Basically, I had a team that's banging out mobile shopping apps for mm-hmm. the UK, Canada, China, Brazil, whatever it is. You know, in Walmart, I've got 280 million weekly customers, right? So that is a yeah. lot of people doing a lot of grocery shopping. And when you see, um, you know, grocery shopping, at that scale, you know, what I saw was essentially a, a, a data set of the industrial food system, right? I'd see people in the UK adding whatever bananas to their shopping list and thinking, okay, well, I grew up in the UK. I didn't see bananas growing. I'm like, where? I just got right. curious, right? Where's that growing? Where's it being shipped from? You know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I could just see this map of the industrial food system, food flying all over the world. Yeah. And I was like, oh my God, like finally. Doesn't like, make sense. Yeah. <laughs> now I understand why Kimbler's been so passionate about this thing for a while. So, um, you know, hopping a skip after that, I sort of went to work with Kimball again at the kitchen um, and, um, you know, worked there for a year with him and took that restaurant and the nonprofit into a couple of new cities. And in parallel um, to doing that work with him, we sort of incubated the idea for Square Roots. Um, so you, you talk about Walmart and the company that you ran being acquired by it. So another company of yours, right? Aviary? Mm-hmm. A- A- uh, yeah, Aviary. Aviary, yep. Um, sold to Adobe. Mm-hmm. Uh, your other company sold to Walmart. Mm-hmm. Do you see where I'm going with this? No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Is the goal for Square Roots to be acquired by? I mean, we live in, in like a, a world where. Um, there is incredible consolidation happening. And this is very, very true, especially within the food industry, right? Um, you see all these big CPGs buying up mm-hmm. more kind of mission-driven companies. I'm thinking like Applegate went to Hormel. I mean, mm-hmm. who would have thought? So is this is this a goal of yours, um, you know, for the company? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, one thing that I've learned in 20 years of building companies is if you start running your company to be acquired, you are going to fall flat on your face and fail big time. Um, so you just can't even think about that, right? What we are trying to but why, do... But why is that? Because you end up making decisions 
that you think are going to look good for the potential acquirer as opposed to making decisions because they are good for your business, right? We wake up every day thinking, how can we bring real food to everyone? How can we empower more entrepreneurs to do that? If we do that at scale, mm -hmm. we will become a very interesting, large, successful business, right? That grows a ton of food, that sells a ton of food, and hopefully in the background is unleashing a generation of food entrepreneurs who are all you know out there running their own companies, right? Who we may well invest in as well. Yeah. Now, that is enough to keep me occupied for the next 10 or 20 years. Yeah. Um, and uh, that's all we should really be thinking about. You know, if someone else sees that there's some value in that and wants to acquire that, like, great. But as I said, the minute you start running your company to try and engineer that to happen, you yeah. fail. I've just seen it like a million times. I guess, I mean, my question in generally speaking on that is like, is that really realistic? I mean, we live in a world where these companies are being <laughs> financed and, you know, you have kind of investors who want to see a return and... I don't know. I mean, I, I part of me wants to believe that yeah. you know that is that is like the best advice, and it seems like it's the best advice. But my other, my I mean, you know, but I have but that, to wonder. That, but that, that's the advice that you'll hear from investors as well, right? Because the investor is going to win if you create an incredible company, yeah. right? That yeah. incredible company is either going to you know cash flow like crazy because customers love it, or you know, or it could IPO, uh, you know, or it could be acquired, or you know, there are plenty of opportunities for uh, liquidation, you know, for the investors to get the money back. Mm -hmm. If you build a great company and nothing else really matters, right? And so you, you, you kind of have to just get myopic and laser focus and do that every single day. As I said, you know, otherwise you, you end up failing. What are some differences that you have seen? I mean, obviously, I'm sure there are huge differences between tech and food. But like, is there something in particular that you have come up against um, that you kind of wouldn't have imagined? Or, you know, like what are, I guess, like outstanding, oh um, God, glaring yeah, like differences? Every single day. Holy cow. <laughs> <laughs> I'm learning so much. I mean, I think, you know, the thing with the, the, the big thing with tech is that time is not a factor, right? Because, you know, you, you're not doing things that are physical, right? You're just kind of moving bits and bites around. You don't have perishables. Right, I yeah, mean, you yeah. can like, you know, have an idea in the shower in the morning, walk to work, you know, sit down with the developer, bang it out, and it's like in market that afternoon being used by a million people. Yeah, that's with, amazing. With, with food, <laughs> Like, you're like, hmm, I'm, I'm going to grow, you know, mustard greens yeah. this month. I think there's an opportunity with mustard greens. Like, great. Yeah. Now wait eight weeks. Yeah, and it's two until, months later. Exactly. You're like, we'll see if that works. And so, you know, th this idea of like, you know, food, food, you know, kind of joking aside, I think one of the, the big realization for me is that food takes time. Time to grow the food and you have to love the food through that process to make it taste nice. You cannot rush that. And then the other thing is that successful food companies are really built on the consumer, the customer having trust in you as a company, trust in your brand, trust in the product. And that also takes time, right? And so you've got these kind of two very important factors here that introduce, you know, this to me, this kind of very kind of strange notion of time um, into, you know, into, into a business. And so, yeah, I've had to, you know, really learn how to sort of deal with that this year. Um, okay, so we only have time for a couple more questions, sure. but um, in, in looking towards sort of the future, and we, mm -hmm. we talked a little bit about your expansion plans, um, but before you do that, so one of the things that I feel like I should acknowledge is that the price point on your products is a little bit higher. Um, yeah, 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 a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would say it kind of, to me, it feels 
it feels like you're buying a, you know, Starbucks, you know, like a sort of, you know, Starbucks coffee, right? Right, right. No, that is not accessible to everyone. Right now. For sure, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. But, you know, 60 million people a day walk into Starbucks and get a, you know, nice frothy latte or whatever it is, right? So so it feels to me like the, the price point that we're at is, you know, there to have a big enough market, you know, come, come in. Um, now, what we need to do, and this is baked into the mission, right, is real food for everyone. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's not just a slogan that we throw out there, right? That is us waking up every day thinking, how can we do that, right? How can we, um, you know, work with technology to bring down costs to make food more affordable, right? How can we, um, you know, get smarter about logistics, right, to, you know, bring down costs to, to make that, that food more available to everyone, and what's very interesting as well is some of the entrepreneurs in the program are also kind of wrapping their head around this in really interesting ways, right? So there's one of the resident entrepreneurs, a guy called Paul Philpot, who sells what he calls gateway greens, right? So he goes direct to the consumer, um, you know, with like a sort of reinvention of the CSA. And some of his consumers willingly overpay for the produce so that he can then distribute discounted greens to low-income neighbor hoods around New York we can right so again I don't know if that scales I don't know if that's the eventual model but what I do know is that a it's kind of baked into our mission that we've got to go figure this out mm-hmm. B the technology curve that I keep talking about you know we're working hard on that to um, you know have technology bend the the, the cost curve and, and and kind of bring that out and then the thing that I've most faith in honestly is the fact that we're coaching this generation of entrepreneurs to go and figure that out as well right and so yeah. they're coming up with 101 ideas every single week to try and tackle the, the this issue too well I mean similar to that related to that is the fact that we you know of course the work that I'm doing at our harvest and you know the work that you're doing it requires to an extent uh, a behavior change in in consumers and I think that's a huge barrier to kind of um, further like to, to progress right our our companies to kind of build right it's you're you're counting on the consumer who wants to you know prioritize uh, taste you know and and locally grown sustainably grown food to think about that to like want to cook whatever how I'm, do I'm you not, I'm not sure that's like a, a change i think the consumer saying this is what we want we don't have enough options so you today. see so you see it as just like a response to consumer not like trying to change consumer oh my behavior. god i think this whole thing is driven by consumer demand hmm. yeah there's absolutely no doubt at all in my mind um you know and 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 that's not just in sort of you know foodie hipster places like brooklyn right yeah um, like you know, exactly so, where we are seated totally. right now. <laughs> 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 Sorry, everybody outside. I didn't mean to. No, it's true. the same brush, but true. you know, in, in the work that I did with Kimberly at the kitchen, right? You know, we're opening real food restaurants here in you know Memphis, Tennessee, right? You take your kids to school in Memphis, and you will see a thirty-five percent childhood obesity rate, right? You will see you know, diabetes, you will see, you know, pollution, right, in local rivers through runoff in the farms. And and you then go talk to local farmers in that region and you quickly figure out that hardly any of them are growing... Vegetables. ...any food that can be consumed by a local human, mm-hmm. right? They are growing GMO cotton or corn for ethanol production. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so you're now, you know, parent taking your kid to school and you're seeing like 35% childhood obesity rate. But you you don't have to be reading, 
you know, Michael Pollan books or watching Dan Barber, you know, documentaries or, you know, whatever it is to like realize there are huge issues with the food system, right? You just have to take your kid to school and you see a third of the, of the children in the, in the country are like uh, obese. It's like horrific. Mm -hmm. You can join those dots. And that is what is driving consumer demand, right? People are losing trust in the industrial food system. They want food that they can trust. And our position on that is if you know your farmer, you can trust the food. And that's essentially what we're trying to do at Square Roots, right? Give yeah. a give an opportunity for everybody to have a direct relationship with their farmer. Um, expansion plans. Where are you going next? Great question. Um, yeah, so again, it's kind of back to the mission, right? Real food for everyone. So mm -hmm. we'll go where everyone is. Um, and then to sort of bring that down to, you know, a level, I think we see the potential here to get to you know there's a you know 20 cities by 2020 sounds um a little ambitious but i think we can get towards that um and um yeah if you kind of follow me on twitter or instagram and see where i'm tweeting from at various points you get a little yeah can, little insight i'm probably leaving a bit of a paper trail <laughs> Around for sure. But yeah, I think, um, you know, news on that uh, kind of next city should come in the first quarter of uh, next year. Where can we find your products? Uh, my favorite question. Thank you so much for asking. And, um, and your favorite place, obviously. Meaning? Oh, of course. Of course. Oh my God. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Yes, absolutely. The first place you'd find them is at Our Harvest. Um, so what, what you can do, so the, the majority of the revenue, so we sell through three channels, right? Mm -hmm. Direct to consumer, um, online and, and, and sort of store retailers and then restaurants. Um, so uh, direct to consumer is like by far the biggest revenue generator for us. So you can go to squarewitsquare.com, sign up for a weekly membership mm -hmm. and a farmer will literally, you know, harvest in the morning, jump on a city bike, come directly to your desk at work just in time for lunch with three or four little bags of greens that you can just rip the top off. And they're like beautiful kind of single serve portion um, that you can, you know, snack on or have for lunch or even take home and cook like it's a really beautiful experience and you know who wouldn't like to have a farmer turning up at their desk right. at work once a week yeah. right so uh, yeah that's all through the website and then uh, as you kind of rightly mentioned <laughs> um, of course you can go to our harvest and uh, and search for square roots there and uh, the beautiful people at our harvest will bring that straight to your home <laughs> Um, shameless plug by me, but you know, I can't help it because it is true. We, we putting my, our harvest uh, hat on, we love carrying your products and our customers are huge fans. I mean, we, um, as in like, won't eat anything else in terms of greens yeah. and I have tasted it. I mean, your the greens are phenomenal. They really are. And at the end of the day, honestly, that's what makes the whole thing go right. You know, you can argue about organic or non-organic and hydroponics and aquaponics and, you know, is urban farming the solution to, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. When people taste the food, yep. they love the food. And at the end of the day, the people that taste this food are going to win. Yeah. And so, you know, we're all about coaching these farmers. You know, they learn an enormous amount over the course of 12 months with us. But the primary thing they learn is to grow really, really tasty food. Yeah. And and they do. Okay. We're going to have to leave it there. But um, thank you so much for coming thank on the show. Thank you. That was fun. Thank you so Great. much. Great. For more information about Square Roots, go to squarerootsgrow.com. And to order their products, go to ourharvest.com. <laughs>
Um, I want to give a big thanks to our sponsors for their generous support uh, and to our show intern, Hannah Weiss, as well as uh, to our engineer, Peter Hirsch. Uh, show music is by Tim Archer. All episodes of Eating Matters are available on the Heritage Radio Network website or as a podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. If you don't haven't done so already, please subscribe, leave a comment, and let us know what you think. I'm Jenna Liute, and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.